You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Hang around after the message for more information about Mission Ridge Church. Sermon notes for this message or any of our other messages can be found through our website, missionridge.church. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoy. We are week three in our series called Family Feud. And in the first week, we saw that dad is disengaged and the brothers overreact when a major event takes place within the family. Maybe you've seen that played out in your family experience. Someone overreacts, someone disengages, and how that impacts family. Second week, uh, Jacob, the father, uh, he favors uh, his next to last son, and, and his brothers hate, hate Joseph for that. They plot against him. Oh, the drama, the strife, the, you know, the turmoil within the family is intense. Uh, they even talk about murder. They don't commit murder, but they, they contemplate it. Like that's, that's our place to be. I don't know what your family dynamics have been, and what kinds of hard emotions that you've had, what kind of hard emotions played on you. And, and, you know, but the Bible is, you know, pretty honest about how tough it can be in family sometimes. And yet God wants to do something about that. He's bringing redemption to the table. He's bringing restoration He wants to reunite families. He wants to bring families back together. He wants to bring healing. He wants to bring hope and restoration in the darkest places, in in the hardest stories. And so we're going to see what this week's story adds to this idea of family feud. Um, I do want to say this. As we read the text, each story will have its own patterns within the text. And, and Logan and I try to highlight those for you because those patterns within that particular story, within that particular chapter, when they don't show up in, in the chapters before or after, matter. And they tell a story within a story and they, and they draw your attention uh, to, to some things. Uh, remember uh, the Hebrew language, uh, the ancient Hebrew language had like 5,000 words. We have over a million within the English language um, with all the different variations and all that kind of stuff. Uh, just a drastically different vocabulary size. And so repetition and patterns help take something, uh, a simple story or tell something simply and, and make it more complex through that pattern. So we'll highlight those things as we go. Super important within, especially this part of, the Bible. So let's start off with uh, Genesis 38. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was 
Hira. Judah saw there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. Uh, now, uh, the Dulamite, pay attention. He's going to show up several times. Pay attention to, to the Dulamite. So she conceived and bore a son and named him Er. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. And she bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was that Chazib that she bore him. I also want to remind you that uh, Isaac wasn't allowed to marry a Canaanite woman and Jacob wasn't allowed to marry a Canaanite woman. And yet Judah is marrying Canaanite women. Now Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar, also a Canaanite woman. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Wow. That's a tough one. Then Judah said to Onan, go into to your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her. Uh, we don't have this practice in, in American Christianity. Uh, it's not that common practice even within Judaism today, but that was a practice then. And raise up offspring for your brother. We'll, we'll talk about that here in just a minute. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, it'd be his brother's, so he went into his brother's wife. He wasted his seed on the ground. Quite literally in Hebrew, he destroyed his seed. His seed being, you know what it means. <laughs> but what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So he took his life also. Then Judah said to his brother or to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Sheila grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now we'll pause the story just a moment and, and, and talk about just a few things. Uh, number one, apparently God is exceptionally aware of our circumstances, of the intimate details of our life. These are the kinds of things I read when I was first a Christian. I'm like, oof. <laughs> like, oof. Yeah, yikes. Uh, you know, I was thinking this morning about uh, politicians, the future, our future politicians 20 years from now. Their entire lives will be digitally recorded. I, I mean, not, not everything, but but a lot, an awful lot. Like we did some dumb things when I was a kid. And those of us that remember those things, good news is we're forgetting more and more every day. <laughs> the, the future politicians, like everything that they ever posted, which is a lot these days, right? Uh, even if you have an ostrich. Uh, but even our kids of today that have so much of their lives recorded on the internet, there's still things that, that's not out there on the digital record. And yet God knows. 
every intimate detail of your life. The good news is he cares. He loves you. But man, uh, it's interesting to me that Judah seems engaged with his boys, but also doesn't have any influence. In fact, he kind of reminds me of Lot. If you remember us talking about Lot, uh, Lot only had influence on the people that were eating at his table. <laughs> he, his his uh, daughters and his son-in-laws, no influence over them. Uh, not a lot of influence on his wife. She went with him, but she didn't really want to go. And, and then the influence that Lot had with his, the two daughters that ended up with him, Ugh. And the whole conversation that God has with, with Abraham or Abraham has with God is really about, well, if I find that Lot has had influence, least over his family, then I'll save that entire city. Judah, not a lot of influence. And he doesn't seem to address the root of the problem. Right? The root of the problem is, is, is the character of his boys. And he doesn't seem to have influence over that, so he just sends the daughter-in-law away. Maybe, maybe you've done that. Like You know that you should be able to influence a situation better than you are, but you're just trying to mask the problem. You don't deal with the root. The, uh, the whole issue about the, 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 the son or the brother coming and uh, performing the duty as, as a brother-in-law, that comes out of Deut- Deuteronomy 25. It's not, it's not codified yet. So uh, at this point in history, it seems to be part of uh, their culture that if, uh, if the older son d- dies and doesn't have any children then the, the next son comes in and he performs the duty to, to keep the, the line through that eldest son because that's how the line got passed down is through that eldest son. The next son will come in and he would raise offspring for the older son that died. Now he could have other wives after that. Let's read Deuteronomy 25. When are, when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now this is called a Leverite marriage. And the brother would have to be devoted to continuing the line of the elder brother. This is self Sacrifice. This is about uh, putting the needs of the family above the needs of the individual. Like I said, we don't do this in America, um, especially within Christianity. Uh, within Judaism, uh, there are some sects that still practice this, but it's not common in the West. The elephant in the room, though, that I think we need to talk about is the fact that God's response to the two older boys is severe. Wow. He just takes them out. God's like, I'm done with you. 
They're out. And when you come to these kind of texts, that could be really challenging. Like, well, what does that mean? What does that mean for me today in, the, in, in today's context? Like, is he going to do that to me? I think we have to be careful about building our theology a, on a couple of lines of text, one. And I think we have to be careful about building our theology on a couple of lines of text without considering them within the whole story. And so we'll come back and we'll talk about this uh, at the end, all right? Let's continue with the story and we'll finish up the story and then we'll get into some implication thoughts and all that good fun stuff. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. A considerable amount of time. Hang on to that. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers in Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Dulamite. That's the second time the Dulamite shows up. He's, again, he's a Canaanite. It was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. Don't cover your face, apparently. At least not in that town. So he turned aside and to her by the road and said, here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? It's been such a long time. You forgot her voice. (laughs) Or like Batman, I'm Batman. (laughs) Those are the two options. I'm a prostitute. Something like that. I don't know. He said, therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal, your cord, and your staff. Huh. Three things that he's supposed to give up. That is in your hand, she says. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. Uh, Remember that she's not or he's not the first person to be deceived by the person he's sleeping with within this family. That might be important. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Dulamite, wait a minute, that's number three. That might be important. To receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of the place saying, where is the temple prostitute? Wait a minute. I thought this was about sex. Maybe it's about more than sex. Where is the temple prostitute who is by the road in Aim? But they said, there has been no temple prostitute. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. What? Three times? You're going to mention that three times? Like you can go out of your way to mention that a third time. Okay, you got me. I'm paying attention. Then Judah said, 
Let her keep them, otherwise we'll become a laughing stock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Now it was about three months later. Man, they find out how that people are pregnant fast in that land. <laughs> uh, three months later, that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played a harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. I don't know if I could say that with as much uh, that Judah said it. Bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man whom these belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. What a phenomenal statement in a messy, messy, messy story. What a phenomenal statement. She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her my son, Shelah. What he promised to do and what the Lord wanted him to do. And he did not have relations with her again. That's our story. That's our story. By the way, in the text, not, not just when Jesus goes into the tomb for three days, but in the text, when you see that something takes three days, three months, three whatever, like oftentimes if God doesn't show up, rut row, Raggy. <laughs> if this is a common pattern, three months later, oh, it's roughly three months later. Is that kind of early to know you're pregnant in, in the ancient world? In the modern world, it's not because we have pregnancy tests. Like, you're not showing at three months, are you? Not typically. I mean, I guess you knew that she, something was missing for three months. We'll go with that. Um, still, I mean, the fact that the text is highlighting that, I think is significant. And, and it's true. If God doesn't show up in this story, if God doesn't work in the heart of Judah, in this story, this mess gets messier because he destroys someone that is pregnant because of his act. We're seeing old dysfunctional patterns emerge in this story. Where's Judah's family? Why in this chapter are none of the brothers and his father never shows up? Why is the Canaanite, the Dulamite, why is he suddenly the best friend? And, and he, the Dulamite seems like the kind of guy that whenever, well, he's my college roommate. The first time, I went to college two different times, actually three. 
Uh, the first time I had this college roommate that whenever I was with him, it was like being with the Dulemite, like uh, nothing but bad was happening. <laughs> nothing but bad was happening. I moved away from him, he moved in with me, I moved away from him, he moved in with me. Uh, it, uh, all three times. When Chad and I were together, it was a mess. That's the Dulemite. And so Judah is estranged from his family. We're not told why. I wonder though, if it has to do with the previous story where it's his idea to sell his brother. I wonder if shame has got him going down a path. You know, where he's just like walking further and further away from the family values. And they were told three times, three times that he thinks that this is a temple prostitute, which is about worship. It's not just about sex. It's about worship. And again, he's, he's, he's straying further and further away from the, the, the values of the family. The worship of the one true God. And then Judah chooses a Canaanite wife. He's acting like Esau. He's acting like Ishmael. Who were part of the covenant, by the way. They were circumcised. Which is all that you needed to be part of the covenant. Like they were, from God's perspective, they're part of the covenant. But by their choices, they were walking away further and further away from that covenant. And doesn't this feel like a departure from the Judah storyline? I'm sorry, the Joseph storyline. Doesn't this feel like a departure from the Joseph storyline? Because if you, if you know your text, you know that every other chapter after this point, the chapter before and every other chapter after this point, the last third of Genesis is about Joseph. So what's this Judah storyline doing right here? What's the author trying to communicate to you and I about our own family feuds? About the drama that we face with our, within our family? This is like uh, episode two of every Stranger Things ever. Like episode one is kind of, hey, life is good. Life is back to normal. Episode two, relationships fall apart. The enemy starts showing up. Things break down. Like you don't know what season you're, you're in, but you always know when you're in episode two. I know that because I, I show up, my wife, my wife is binge watching the rest. Like we just finished episode or season four, I think it was, waiting for season five. My wife wanted to go back and review the, the first three seasons. And uh, I'm like, yep, episode two, I'm not even paying attention, but here we are. Joseph sold into slavery, and then Judah is just off doing his own thing about 
as far away from a redemptive life as you could get. Worshiping other gods, marrying into a culture that doesn't respect his, his God or his culture, uh, facing problems without, without God. Maybe you've been there. Or maybe you're watching someone that's there now. Now, as far away from a, the, a redemptive life as you can imagine. And you're wondering if there's any, any hope in that situation. And maybe this is a story for you and for me in those days, in those times. Now, Rabbi David Foreman, he is exceptional at uh, exegeting the Old Testament. Fantastic. Uh, if you go to alephbet.org, alephbeta.org, you can watch his videos. Uh, we pay for a subscription, but you can watch some of his videos for free. And he's just amazing at breaking down these stories and, and there's things that he knows that I don't know because of the Hebrew and how the words connect and all that kind of stuff. Things that he sees. You know, they've been looking at these stories for 4,000 years. We've been kind of looking at them for 2,000 years, but we've kind of go, yeah, we'll get to those eventually. We're going to look at Matthew first and Mark and Luke and John, which we need, we need the Gospels. We need the New Testament. But, but so he's not a Jesus follower, but he's really good at understanding the Old Testament. And, and so we, we, uh, we at least pay attention to what some of the things he has to say. He has this theory um, on goat and cloak stories. Goat and cloak stories. There's three of these stories that show up in Genesis. A man is deceived in a plot involving a goat. The first one, the first one uh, was Jacob with his dad, Isaac. He kills a goat and then he puts on a goat skin to deceive his dad, right? Um, somewhere along the line, someone loses a coat. Someone loses a coat. And then the coat is presented to the father for recognition. So those are the three elements to this goat and cloak story. And it shows up three times. Like I said, uh, Jacob with Isaac. The 10 brothers with Jacob, they, they kill a goat. They take the coat that was Joseph's and they uh, mar it with blood. And then they bring it to their dad and say, do you recognize this? And, and dad's deceived. The last one is this week's story. It's kind of hard to see because, uh, because they, the author uses a little different word. He uses the word cords. Give me your, your ring, your staff, and your cords. Think of it like this. I like your threads today. Nice threads. Your cords, your threads. The threads 
the cords are presented to deceive or presented to the Father, okay? So three goat and cloak stories. So, so these stories are connected and it's to highlight that these patterns keep showing up. Jacob's children are replaying their father's deception over and over and over again. They're doing it their own way. They're, they're, they're getting inventive. Um, but it's happening over and over again. And Judah is faced with the question of continuing to cover up the truth or learn and grow. Will you continue to cover up the truth or will you change your ways? Will you repent? Will you trust that God can actually do something with this? It's amazing to me that Judah in this moment chooses to take responsibility because it, my experience that the, the higher up the, the ladder you go, the harder it is to own up to your mistakes. Right? As mom, as dad, that's, that's sometimes hard. Kid calls you out, and you, they're six, you're 36. And they're calling you out and you're like, <laughs> uh, in the military, the more stripes you wear, you make a major blunder, will you own that? If you're an officer, to own your mistakes as a lieutenant, as a lieutenant, you own everybody's mistakes. <laughs> Especially the generals. As a general, as a one star, as a two star, as a three star? Tell me that's not hard. Within business, when, you, when you've been doing something for 40 years and you make a major blunder, you make a major mistake, you make a decision that could sink the business, are you gonna own that? Or are you gonna pass that buck to someone else? The fact that Judah owns this in this moment when it's just her word against his word, that's significant. But I want to go back to the elephant in the room. Why did Joseph, or why did God take error and then Onan? Why did God take error and then Onan for destroying his seed? And yet Judah goes into Tamar believing that she's a temple prostitute. Like, like, uh, like, is, would you, would you want to be, be the judge on that one? You want to be Judge Judy for that court case? One of these two dudes got to die. The one that destroyed his seed or the father-in-law that thought that she was a temple prostitute. You're Judge Judy. What are you doing? Here's some, um, and what's fascinating to me is not only does, does, does Judah survive this event, but, but later he and Tamar are like heroes 
within the family, within Judaism. If you look at Ruth 11, Ruth 4, 11 through 13, it says all the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. So, so this is uh, Ruth and Boaz are coming together. They're going to get married. And this is a proclamation. This is a blessing. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah. Easy for me to say. And become famous in Bethlehem. I can say that one. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. Like, tell me that they don't see this as a redemptive moment. Through the offspring which the Lord will give you through this young woman, through Ruth. Here's what I think is going on here. I don't believe that, I believe that Judah's boys did not care about God's righteousness. They did not care. Judah, however, did. She is more righteous than I. And I think it's this moment that brings Judah back. Like Judah's been, no doubt, Judah's been on a long path for a long time, going down the wrong way. And I don't know about you, but I've been there. I've been on that path so far and, and you're not sure you could ever get back. That's where Judah was at, but he cared about God's righteousness. And this moment brings him back. And I think that's why God takes the boys, but doesn't take Judah. Now, I also believe this. If Judah hadn't responded appropriately in this instance, that God would have had to take him to. And this is not about salvation. This is about people being in a covenant relationship with God, bringing harm to the people around them. And we need to understand this story that way. When you're in a covenant relationship with God, when you put on God's name you, and you call yourself a Christian and you, 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 uh, you get baptized and you take communion on, and, you wear this, and you wear the shirt, God's going to have to judge you more harshly than those that are not doing that. If you're bringing harm to the world. Now, when and how God does that, that's his deal, not mine. I'm just here to tell you that when we're in a covenant relationship with God, what we do matters. How we live matters. John puts it this way, all unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death. There are sins that lead to death and I believe first and foremost that has to do with if we're doing harm to those around us. Ananias and Sapphira, right? bringing harm to the community at large. It's a, it's a small community of believers. And, and God's like, I got to judge that now. I can't wait. Now, do I suspect that we'll see Ananias Sapphira in heaven? It's my hope. It's my hope. I'm hoping I'll be in heaven <laughs> for that matter. But I think that's what's going on with this story. I think that's why God is so severe with the sons, and then seems not severe when it comes to Judah 
and tomorrow. Now, some implications. Number one, while the world judges your every action, God judges your heart. God knows your heart, but he judges your heart. Set your heart on his kingdom and his righteousness. Regardless of what, what, you know, what the path you've been on for a season, whatever that's looked like, the world may be ready to judge you. Uh, you know, if you're on Facebook long enough, someone will judge you. <laughs> Unfortunately, someone somewhere will judge you if you're on social media long enough. If someone's not offended by my sermon online, I'd be surprised. Someone's judging me for the words I'm saying this morning. God judges, judges your heart. So set your heart on his kingdom and his righteousness. Number two, when you don't invite God into your decisions, when you don't invite him into your decisions, oftentimes you create new and potentially bigger problems. Tell me that's not true. Tell me you haven't tried this out before. <laughs> Tell me you haven't tested this before. A uh, number of weeks ago, probably eight weeks ago, uh, my daughter called me as I was just crawling into bed and she said, Dad, we got this guy, he's road raging us, uh, we're scared. Come outside, we need your help. I threw my clothes on, I went downstairs. It was about five minutes before they showed up. And in that five minutes, I got hotter and hotter and hotter. I was like mad. I was steaming. Like you watch the Looney Tunes and the smoke coming out like that. Like I was, I was so mad that when the kid showed up in his car following the girls, I thought me against a 2000 pound car, that was a good idea. Straight out of Looney Tunes. When I walked away from that situation, God says, you didn't invite me in. Oh, by the way, uh, that's my neighbor. Cross the street that I had never met. It's actually my neighbor's son. That I had never met. I had some very choice words for him that night. created a bigger problem. I had, I had plenty of time to pray. At least in Nehemiah prayer. You don't invite God into your decisions. Man. And sending tomorrow away, that just created more problems. It created a bigger problem. A problem that Judah couldn't have guessed. Number three, own your mistakes and others will benefit. This is especially true in the areas of life that you are seen as a leader. Whether you're leading a Bible study, whether you're a mom, whether you're an aunt, uncle, dad, you've been in your trade for 40 years, 20 years, 10 years, whatever arena of leadership you're in, when you own your mistakes, other people will benefit. Number four, become a student of your past 
then invest in your emotional and spiritual health to forge a new future. The good news of Jesus Christ is this. He is about redemption. He's about restoration. He is about putting families back together, healing relationships. That's what he's about. Will you be about that? But in order to do that, you have to know what your family history is and, and what kind of impact. What are you living out? What are you repeating that you didn't realize that you're just repeating because you've just been bumbling along like me? And so we have this, we have this insert, this worksheet. Uh, this comes to us from uh, Peter Scazzaro and uh, the Emotionally Healthy Leader, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, and there's one other book he's got. There's Emotionally Healthy in the title somewhere. What's that? Emotional Healthy Spirituality. And so Peter Scazzaro says, hey, you really can't disconnect your emotional health from your spiritual health. They're, they're intertwined. I honestly believe that this has to, like spiritual warfare today, there's an aspect that relates to our spiritual health or emotional health. But um, your genograms, your family history with sin and shame. And uh, let's go to the next slide. So you have to start off with your family tree. And, and this goes four, one, two, three, four, five. This goes five generations. He recommends going three generations, at least three generations. Um, and, and so this may be a tool that you use to help understand why your kids are doing what your kids are doing. Why are they doing that? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why is that your automatic response? And uh, we, you know, Logan and I are willing to go through this with you and journey with you. Uh, we got some folks that uh, have counseling backgrounds that can journey with you on this, but uh, this is a helpful tool. So um, this, this, the sheet tells you how you can... Uh, document and, and identify, you know, how relationships played out within your family. But let's look at the next slide. And we said that Joseph was estranged, but he's not the only person that's ever been estranged within his family. Uh, Jake or Judah is estranged. Joseph is estranged. Jacob was estranged from his parents. Isaac at one point was estranged from Abraham. Ishmael was estranged from Abraham. And so estrangement, separation, broken relationship is part of the family history as seen by these beautiful diagram. Next slide. Look at the people that took a Canaanite wife. That keeps repeating itself. Next slide. We got the goats and the cloak story. That keeps repeating itself. And like people come up with new creative ways of doing the same thing. But, you know, I used to tell my wife, I said, don't tell our kids what we did as kids because I don't want them repeating what we did because my parents told me what they did and I did all of it. (laughs) 
on purpose and with gusto. I didn't want my kids doing that. But you know what? My kids have found their own way of doing what I did. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew that would happen? By the way, identifying what's been true of our family, that's not to judge. It's just to understand. It's just to understand those patterns and how they're playing out. And what can we do to stop those patterns from continuing? What's our part? So become a student of your past. Then invest in your emotional and spiritual health to forge a new future. That's how we move forward as a family. But I want to go back to implication one. It says this, while the world judges your every action, God judges your heart. Set your heart on his kingdom and his righteousness. And so my question for you this morning is, what is the trajectory of your heart? Maybe you haven't been living it out so well. Maybe there's been some blunders. Maybe you've made some choices that have led you away from the path that you know that God is leading you to. But what is the trajectory of your heart? Because if that's set on God's righteousness and his kingdom, God can work with that. Second thing I want to ask you is, is family drama persisting because of you? Is it persisting because of you? Do you have a part to play in changing that? Third question. Are you addressing root problems? Are you addressing root problems? Now, man, I'll tell you what, there's some root problems that are, they are complicated and they'll take a lot of prayer. A lot of prayer. Are you addressing root problems or are you making rash decisions without God? And finally, are you inviting God into whatever drama you're seeing within your family? Are you praying about that? Are you praying for the other person? If not, that may be where you need to start. So as we pass out communion, thank you. Consider those four questions. What's the trajectory of your heart? Is family drama persisting because of you? Are you addressing the problem? And are you inviting God in? And just consider what your part is. Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. Mission Ridge is a church focused on relational discipleship and located in Missoula, Montana. If you are in the Missoula area, we would love to have you come say hello. For more information about Mission Ridge, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or online at missionridge.church. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church/give. We'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks for tuning in. 